We want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs. And I'm TJ Darty. And we are the Reformed Informants. Man, I, I guess it would only be right to give the token response to 2020. Man, we are glad 2020 is over and we are into 2021. And thinking about that, uh, 2020 was a crazy year for us, for everybody, but even for the podcast. I mean, we, we went under, uh, we underwent a lot of change in 2020, uh, a lot of a lot of newness, a lot of excitement. Uh, we had a lot of special guests and good conversations and uh, on to a new year. Looking forward to what this year brings, uh, not only in society and uh, hopefully getting back to some form of normalcy, but even for the podcast. Just excited to be back and uh, having having another conversation with you, man. I've, I've missed it. Yeah, man. Um, of course, this is, this is always a highlight. And, and to touch back on 2020, a lot of grumbling and a lot of complaining. But in reality, man, I, 2020 was by far the best year of my life. Honestly, mm. honestly, um, it, it, it was a good year amidst the chaos. Um, we've got the gospel, my lovely wife and my son, man, I, I don't even have any complaints. Yeah. Hard, hard to be upset when you think about that. And I mean, same, same here, man. 2020 was uh, incredible for me. God called us to, to Paris and, uh, called us to Central Baptist Church. And I've loved every second of serving in, uh, that role as senior pastor here. And then of course, uh, we had our second daughter. Uh, 2020 was a great year in so many ways. And yeah, man, it was hard for a lot of people. And his, life is still hard. Uh, we know that. But uh, but you're right, man. The gospel uh, continues to go forth. The gospel continues to to comfort our souls. And uh, we're excited to, to just be able to rest in those things, too. Man, well, it is 2021. We've plugged back in the mics and hit record. Uh, just to give you guys a little preview of where we are going for the next two months. Um, really, the, the the main draw, the big ticket that we have as we wrap up season two, uh, essentially, will be our pneumatology series. Uh, so we've mentioned this before, but it is in concrete. It is written in tablets of stone that we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to work through uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit here for the next uh, couple months. Um, I think we may plug in an episode that we've uh, tentatively titled uh, The Gospel and Social Media or Social Media and the Gospel. We may have time to uh, throw in that episode there in the mix. But we're going to record, record, and record all the way up until March 30th when uh, my second son uh, will be born. We have actually have to induce a week early. Um, we don't want to get into those details, but that's the plan. Um so yeah, before we start the pneumatology series, though, and I'm going to send this back to you, TJ, um, we, we've got somewhat of a little one-off episode uh, to get us rolling. Yeah, man. Uh, of course, if you're new to the podcast, I uh, had several uh, folks, even from my church, who have uh, told me that they've stumbled upon the podcast or they've uh, started listening according to recommendations from others. Uh, and uh, it gets me excited that, that folks are tuning in. And so we, I know that we have some that are new. And uh, so if you're new to listening to the podcast, what we do here is we uh, are building a systematic theology. And so what we do is we go through individual doctrines and uh, we've worked our way through those doctrines. And we'll uh, talk about that a little bit next week as we jump into the next series. Uh, and so those doctrines build upon 
uh, one another. We we started all the way back in uh, bibliology, and I don't know how long ago was that, Lance? Like two years ago? Yeah, I mean two two years this this May, two years this yeah. May. So so two years ago we started this journey and we're we're working our way through these doctrines. But along the way we stop and uh, have conversations that are more practical, uh, geared towards more practical questions. And and in particular with this episode, we we have lots of folks that will uh, ask us to talk about particular topics. Like, hey, we we would love to have uh, you guys discuss this or answer this. And so uh, we we really enjoy uh, getting this type of uh, of episode together because it allows our listeners uh, to to put forward uh, questions and, and topics that they are currently dealing with and uh, allows us to to interact with you guys. And so we're thankful for this. And so if you ever have questions, uh, of course, you can always send them to us. We keep a, a running list. Uh, but in particular with this episode, we, we just reached out and asked uh, our listeners via social media, hey, anything you guys want? And we were uh, so encouraged with the amount of, of questions that we got. And so we're going to run through some of these questions. Uh, if we don't get to all of them today, that's all right. We'll come back and do these again in the future. And so uh, if we don't hit your uh, question, don't be discouraged. We've got it saved and we will definitely uh, cover these uh, in due time. Yeah, man, that's great. Well, this is episode 58 and we've titled this A Whole Lot of Questions. <laughs> And I'm, I'm going to kick us off here with the first one. I'm going to send it back your way, and we're going to we're going to open up this discussion. But one of the questions that uh, was submitted to us, it basically reads like this: There are people that have been taught that the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, there are people that have been taught that the Ten Commandments no longer matter or no longer come into play after the resurrection of Jesus. Basically, they believe that the only lasting or only eternal command would be to love God and to love others, or to love God and to love love your neighbors. So uh, there's, there's really two questions that come out of that, but we're going to answer this first one here. Do the Ten Commandments still matter? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I love this question. I love the way that you framed this, Lance. You said that there's uh, two questions here. And, uh, and so I think the answers to these questions will come theologically and then pastorally in our case, right? Like practically. And so theologically, the question about the Ten Commandments, this, is, this could warrant its own series uh, of how the Old Testament law uh, applies or, or interacts with us today. And um, uh, here, here's how I kind of would, would like to uh, approach this question theologically. Um, and I, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on this as well. Thank you. Uh, but, but we are uh, <laughs> we are not bound by the Ten Commandments in the same way that Israel was. So, so when the Ten Commandments were issued in Exodus chapter 20, this was a covenant that God was making with the nation of Israel as they were entering into the promised land. The land promised in Genesis 12, uh, the land fulfilled uh, in the book of Joshua. This was given to them as instructions for how to live. And later in the New Testament, Jesus is going to summarize the law with those two commands to love God and love people, love others, love your neighbor. And so the, those uh, two laws, the first and greatest commandment, and then the second that is like it, summarize all of the Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments. And so in some sense, yes, that is true uh, that the Ten Commandments don't apply to us in the same way. However, I think this is vital. 
uh, we need to recognize that in in particular in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through uh, most of the Ten Commandments and essentially expands them and says, "Many you you think okay, I'm I'm." abiding by the Ten Commandments in the sense that I have not murdered anyone. And Jesus says, okay, you say you haven't murdered anyone, but you have anger in your heart, and therefore you are a murderer. Uh, oh, you, you haven't committed adultery? Well, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so what Jesus is doing is he's demonstrating uh, really the, the purpose of the law. He's demonstrating that the law was designed uh, in order to uh, demonstrate our failure, our need uh, for, for saving, our own sinfulness. Um, and so uh, the law in that sense demonstrates our imperfections, our need for a Savior. Uh, however, we also want to acknowledge that the law was also given in order to demonstrate uh, what believers, what God's people ought to do in order to honor Him, to, to live uh, according to his purposes. And so yeah, I wouldn't say that the Ten Commandments are uh, in the same covenantal sense applied to us, but I would say that the principles of those Ten Commandments, as repeated and expanded in the New Testament, demonstrate that we are to live according to them. Thoughts Thoughts on that, Lance? I guess we should just move on to the next question. Goodness gracious. No, there's, there's, more to, there's more to say. There's more to say. Goodness gracious. I'm a co-host here. Let me get a cut. No, I'm kidding. No, that's all good. So, yeah, I, I would. I, I want. I want to bounce off what TJ was saying there. Re really, uh, um, in, in two parts. One, as we see Jesus expanding uh, the Ten Commandments to the heart. I mean, that is essentially the heart of the Ten Commandments. It, you know, uh, excuse the pun there, but it wasn't mere uh, physicality. You know, right. do not murder, do not steal. It's not desiring those things. So Jesus is, man, he, I mean, he's taking it down to the heart level as he expounds on the Ten Commandments, which is ultimately what he's getting at, like you said, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, secondly, I, I would add that the Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments are mentioned, mentioned again in the New Testament. Nine of the ten. The, the only one that isn't uh, reiterated in the New Testament would be commandment number four, uh, keeping of the Sabbath. Okay? Keeping of the Sabbath. Um, so, to me, and my understanding of the revelation of God, the New Testament authors and writers mark those nine out of the ten as applicable and still ongoing in the life of the believer not in the same covenantal sense, TJ, that you had mentioned, but solely in the sense that those are commands of God that deal with morality. Those are commands of God that deal with morality. So the third point I would add, I know I said that I had to, but I'll throw one more in here and send it back to you, is that the Old Testament laws can be broken up into three categories. Traditionally, they've been broken up into three categories. Systematic theologians, for the most part, agree on this. Of course, some would take an alternate route. However, you could break up the commands or the law in the Old Testament into three categories. You have civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. Well, those civil and ceremonial laws, 
to your point, TJ, were given to a covenant people at a specific time. God's morality, however, is not limited to a specific place and a specific time. An example of that would be, um, we, we, I've used, I think I've used this before on the podcast, talking about coming to a four-way stop, and you, you've got stop signs. If you pull your car up to a four-way stop, you have a stop sign and you stop. But you come to that intersection the following day, and there's a police officer that's waving you through. Well, are, are, are you technically breaking the law because you're going through the intersection on the cop's command? No. Okay, so essentially that law had, had been abrogated. That law had been changed. That is true of civil and ceremonial laws. They no longer apply in the new covenant. However, the moral law of God is an eternal moral law. Yeah, and there's there's so much more that can be said on this, and we know that uh, we're just really scratching the surface. But uh, but I think the the closing words that I want to and and I would affirm everything you just said there. Uh, the closing words that I would want to point out for for this individual, uh, because the, the the question came in and says, how could I lovingly encourage them? toward the truth. Somebody who does believe this, which uh, by the way, this uh, belief system is what theologians call antinomianism, which means anti-law. Nomian meaning uh, coming from the Greek word nomos, which means law. And so uh, the the first verse that comes to mind is Paul in Romans chapter six, uh, when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so uh, the point there being that we have a desire to pursue what God has revealed as holy in those moral laws. We have a desire to do that uh, and not to just say, well, that doesn't apply to me because I live in under grace. Uh, and so it's an extreme reaction away from uh, an understanding of of holy living, and so we want to encourage us uh, to we want to encourage believers to pursue that holy living, to be holy as He is holy, and so uh, that would be my 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 final thoughts there. Yeah, and I, I would just add to that last statement you made about being holy because God is holy. In First Peter chapter one, um, and on into First Peter chapter two, as he is talking to believers, he quotes from Leviticus which thematically is about holiness. And Peter calls for Christians to live holy lives, to live holy lives. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, This is what Christians are called to do in the New Testament. Yeah, so again, I'm with you. My encouragement would, would be, look, Christians are called to fight and battle against sin, Romans right. 6, Galatians chapter 5, but they're also called to live holy lives, set apart lives. So yeah, that's where I would go. Awesome. Awesome. Anything else on that question? Are we good? Nah, I think we're going to roll the next one here. I'm going to set the context for this one and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give it back to you. Uh, So the next question we got um, comes in the context of Matthew chapter two, verse 18. This is around the birth narrative of Christ. Uh, This is when Herod had instructed and commanded for infants under the age of two to be murdered. Um, He's essentially following in the footsteps of his father, John chapter 8, verses 44 and 45. So Herod is trying to murder and kill all the infants, um, essentially trying to kill Christ. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's the context of the time frame 
of Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. But the question is, if the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe which Jesus came for, according to Genesis, oh man, that's in the 40s, Genesis 40-something, right? Do you remember that? Yeah, I think it's 48. I'm going to check yeah, that. 4810, maybe? Yeah. There's a prophecy in the book of Genesis that tells us that the uh, king, the scepter, will not depart from Judah. Um, so if the tribe of Judah came from Leah and Jacob, why did the New Testament writers, specifically Matthew, why did they quote Rachel as weeping and not Leah? All right. Uh, first note, it was Genesis 49.10, so my mistake 49. on that. Genesis 49.10. Uh, but, but this question um, is a, a fascinating one, one that I had not thought about before. And uh, the, I believe the spirit of the question is essentially that if you're reading Scripture, as we uh, aim to do, if you're reading with biblical theology in mind, why was it that Rachel is recalled here because Leah is really the mother in the line of Christ. And so why would the biblical authors be pointing us towards Rachel? Well, uh, the answer to this question actually comes from uh, earlier in the book of Genesis, whenever uh, Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, uh, when when she gives birth to Benjamin, she dies in childbirth and uh, she had um, been buried in or at least near Bethlehem. And so over the course of history, uh, Rachel began to be known as uh, the mother of Bethlehem because she was given, uh, she was, she had given her life uh, in childbirth. And remember also, I think it's a, a factor to consider here that Rachel had been barren. So Leah was blessed with children. Uh, she had six children, but Rachel, who was uh, the favored wife, um, of Jacob, she did not have the ability to give children, to bear children for, for many years. And so, uh, there, there's, there was a special type of, of desire to be a mother. And so anyways, I, I think that the answer to this question is really, uh, just the historical, uh, background of her being regarded as the mother of Bethlehem. Uh, John Chrysostom, uh, one of the uh, early church fathers, he he pointed out that Rachel, in his commentary on Matthew 2, says that Rachel is the representative of Bethlehem. And so I, I think that that uh, should answer our question as to why she was mentioned and not Leah. Uh, I think it's a fascinating question, but I hope that that uh, kind of solves that and uh, lets us know that the author is not, our biblical authors here, uh, in this case, in Matthew, he's not trying to draw attention away from the line of Christ, but simply calling to mind a, uh, a historical reference to Rachel uh, as the mother of Bethlehem. Yeah, man, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, the, the only thing I would add to that uh, would be the, the the unity that we have in, uh, in in the Scripture in terms of the Holy Spirit being the one author, the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew, who most likely wrote this gospel. Matthew to recall such an event and connect it and tie it to such yeah. an event in, in the New Testament, man. The, the unity yeah. of Scripture is is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, that's 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 a great point too. Um, okay, next question, uh, question number three, uh, Lance. I'm gonna I'm gonna lay this out for you. This actually came from uh, a church member here at Central, and uh, really struck my heart. I know it did yours as well. So. Uh, th- this question uh, came to us and says, uh, as a parent, 
how do we get out in front of the message of the world for our children? So contextually, uh, the question is essentially, instead of having to react and correct everything that our children are faced and, uh, and see in the world, how do we get out in front of it? Uh, how, how do we train our children? And, and uh, in particular, the, the, the listener went on to ask, should we withdraw? Should we be like the Amish folks and just completely disconnect and say, we're going to have our own sub, sub-society and not interact with anyone else? How do, how do we do this? What does this practically look like? Uh, Lance, as a parent, I have, uh, and I know your uh, children are uh, going to be the same age, you know, and, and line is mine. I mean, Luther and Blakely are just weeks apart. Uh, so we haven't had to face this to the degree that we will in the in the months and years ahead. So, but it's certainly on the forefront of my mind as a dad. So, what are your thoughts here? How, how do we get out in front of this uh, where we battle for the message of the world? Yeah, I'm 15 months into this parenting thing, man. I've got it all figured out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably have a couple books written by now. Oh man, no, not at all. But I mean, at, at least to kick us off here, look. Whatever the question may be, whatever the situation is, even in terms of parents and children and the family, we always have to go back to the Word of God. We, we, we have to go to the Word of God. We, we have to get biblical wisdom from God. Uh, we have to get biblical principles from God. And if we go directly to His Word, we, we can tackle and answer uh, these particular questions, even if experientially we, ha- we don't have it completely figured out yet if that makes sense. So at least initially what came to mind to me was Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is our duty as parents. This is our duty as a father and mother to train up our children Really, for, for multiple fronts, one, because we want them to come to faith in Christ. We want them to know the scriptures. Uh, we see that Paul was Paul and Timothy kind of discussing being trained and, and brought up in the admonition of the Lord uh, in, in Second Timothy. But we want to do this ultimately to bring our kids to salvation. But also, I mean, there's another component to this. We want to be able to do this uh, so they can be solid and firm um, and, and plants it in the Word of God to be able to live in this world. They're going to live in this world, but they're not of the world, of course. Uh, I think that's somewhat of a cliche thing to cliche thing to say. Um, but in reality, th- th- this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to train up our kids based on the Word of God. Man, I I love that you took us first to Ephesians six. I think that's the perfect place to go. Um, I was also reminded of Deuteronomy 6, uh, the Shema uh, for Israel. Uh, when, when Moses tells uh, the people, he says, These words that I command you today, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your, on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, what you just said, this biblical uh, undergirding, this truth, the commands of Scripture, uh, knowledge about God—they should just be—they should just permeate 
everything that we do as parents uh, to the point to where uh, our children who are sponges, they're just going to absorb so much of this, right? Like they're just going to, they're just going to soak it in. And so uh, that word diligently that Moses uses uh, really caught my attention when I was uh, thinking about this question, because discipleship, holiness, those things require intentionality. Uh, you're not just going to stumble into it. You're, you're not going to, your kids are not going to uh, just have a deeper affection for the things of God just kind of waltzing through life, right? It's not just, just going to happen. It requires intentionality. Now, the question then becomes practically, what does that look like? H- how do I actually accomplish this? Um, I- I've got a couple of thoughts, Lance. I, I want to hear yours as well. Um, my first practical uh, thought that came to mind was was prayer. Uh, we need to just be a- acknowledge that on our own, we're going to struggle. Uh, we're going to fail. Uh, but uh, we can rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to uh, cover our kids in prayer uh, and our parenting in prayer. Uh, and then the other thing that immediately came to mind was the local church, uh, bringing our children, letting the church assist. Uh, we're not dropping our kids off at church. We're not just saying, here, the church do this, but we want the church to wrap uh, their arms lovingly around parents, Uh to be a support group, to encourage one another. Um, another practical thing, catechisms. Uh, that's something that I I know that Chloe and I are going to practice this with our children. Uh, Lance, I'm, I'm certain you'll do the same based on our conversations. Uh, catechisms would be a great way to teach our children truth and to expose them to the truth early before they are exposed uh, to things of the world. Um, and then also the, the last thing that comes to my mind, and I'll kick it back to you, Lance, but just being very protective about what my children are exposed to. Um, I, I'm just not going to say here, have a TV up in your room and just good luck, have fun up there. Like it's just, it's not going to happen. I'm going to be very protective because uh, the world is not concerned uh, about the well-being of my children, uh, but I am. So any, any additional practical thoughts there, Lance? Man, so many thoughts swirling around in my head how to tackle this. You know, yeah. I, I feel like it's ever on my mind because, you know, I'm, I'm in this reality. I'm in this camp now uh, by, by the grace of God. But, I mean, you touched on uh, many components in, in, in the same direction that I would go. Um, yeah, I mean, exposure to the truth of God. There has to be an, a consistent exposure to the truth of God in your family. It, it has to be modeled in the home. It has to be modeled in the home by God's grace. I, I want to do that for my wife and my children. Um, secondly, as you had mentioned, TJ, you have to be plugged into a local church. Mm-hmm. You have to be plugged into a local church, the most biblical church that you can find in the area. Okay, mm-hmm. you 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 have you have to do that. And, and, and church, by the way, isn't the mashed potatoes. It's not the sauce. Church is the steak. Mm-hmm. You. <laughs> Come on. You have to be connected to a local church. You as parents, and I'm talking to myself here, I have to be plugged into a local church. I have to. That 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 is the New Testament pattern for all believers. And that's where the that's secondly where the training up of the kids happens. First it happens in the family at home inside your inside the walls of your house, but then it happens um at the local church. Um practically speaking, because I think those other two are, are, are essentially non-negotiables. 
practically speaking, what does that look like? You, you, you have to live out those two areas. You have to live out a biblical worldview on whatever you do, whether you're going to get groceries, you're getting the oil changed in the car, uh, you're cleaning the house, uh, you're out shopping, you're, I mean, whatever it is, you have to live out those principles that you're teaching your kiddos. Um, it, it can't be mere intellectual head knowledge. You have to live a biblical worldview. And I, the world in 2021 has presented Christians an opportunity to truly live out that biblical worldview. I mean, it's as if distinctions right. or lines are being drawn. This is a perfect time to start now. Perfect time to start now. Yeah, yeah you mentioned uh, catechisms, um, prayer, and those things, of course. Um, but, but but all of those are born out of the truth of the Word of God. That's that's essentially where it starts. That's right. Gosh, there's, there's so much. I mean, I, I'm certain that we will come back and discuss uh, more about what it looks like to, to, to be a parent, to disciple children. Uh, love this question. It's something that we will uh, no doubt come back to. Um, so hope that was helpful. And of course, uh, there's much more that can be said. But let's move on, uh, Lance, to the next question. Uh, I'm, I'm going to kick it to you because I'm going to let you kind of explain why we're not going to answer this question in detail today. But we had somebody to ask that we would talk about spiritual gifts and talk about their function uh, in the local church today. So uh, any thoughts on that and kind of explain uh, where we're going to go to answer that question in the future? Yeah, I mean, man, th this is such a great question because it's critical. This is critical to church life. It's critical to the health of the church. And it's absolutely critical to be obedient to the gifting that God has given you, right? Like, TJ, you have a gift. If you're not using that gift for the good of the church, uh, then, then you are failing to live in, in a manner that would be pleasing to the Lord. Of course, you, you won't do that perfectly, but you need to be exercising your gift for the edification of other believers. I say all that to say <laughs> yeah. that this is our up and coming pneumatology series. This is like maybe one or two episodes uh, of what we have planned. So I think it would be better, at least at this point, we're going to hold off on answering this question in full. And then we're going to dedicate an entire episode, um, you know, 45 minutes or an hour, basically tackling this question and this question alone. So we appreciate your submission. We're not dodging this but we've got an entire episode planned here within the next few weeks. Yep. Uh, thank you for, man, just, just wetting the appetite, right? Just we're, we're coming back to it. So don't, don't go anywhere, stick around. And when we will explain uh, the connection between spiritual gifts uh, in pneumatology, which pneumatology, if we haven't said this already, is a study of the Holy Spirit. So uh, gifts that come from the Holy Spirit. And then later when we get to, I don't know, a decade from now, when we finally get to ecclesiology, the study of the local church, uh, we will come back and address spiritual gifts from that aspect as well. And so there's, uh, of course, much that can be said, and we hope to say it uh, some yeah. point in the future. So, yep. Um, yeah, so that'll, that'll, that'll take us to the next one here. I'll present it, and TJ, you, you can get us rolling. So but th this question in particular deals with someone that's running a business, someone that owns a company, um, someone that, that is in that particular avenue or that particular arena. Well, how does someone manage personal, biblical, religious convictions when running a business or managing a business in today's world and in today's climate? 
And the, the second part to that would be, when should someone stand their ground and hold fast to Christianity or hold fast to the scripture or God's word, even in the midst of uh, the uh, a downfall or you know something of that sort with your business? Right. Yeah. And I, I, if I understand this uh, question correctly, based on uh, the submission, um, I, I think that part of this also is dealing with when uh, society is putting pressure on you um, in terms of yielding to the prevailing thought of the day. And, and maybe uh, a practical example of this might be like the Christian cake baker uh, or the photographer who has uh, the question about a wedding, you know, at what point should your convictions dictate uh, where you where you draw the line uh, on things of this nature? Uh, and, and I think the way that I would answer this question, um, knowing good and well that I may have to live out this conviction uh, as a pastor, that this may be something that uh, I deal with in the future. Um, but I will say say this, that we are to never compromise when it comes to the gospel. Uh, we are to never back down uh, when it comes to uh, biblical truth. In, in other words, I'm never going to bend. I'm never going to compromise. I'm never going to uh, allow my convictions to be thwarted or swayed. Uh, in the words of Paul, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel, even if it means that I will lose uh, in this world, uh, even if it means that I will sacrifice uh, an income or if I will sacrifice uh, reputation or notoriety um, in the community uh, among my peers. I I'm just not going to because when it comes to how we live, uh, we are those who have been transformed by this gospel. We are not going to back down and, and turn uh, turn our back on the one who has redeemed us. Now, uh, one other comment I want to make, though, I want to kind of give a caveat, and then Lance, I would love to hear your your input here. Um, but I don't mean to say that we are running around looking for a fight, right? Like, I don't want us to, to be those that are contentious, that I, I don't want us to be those who are quarrelsome, uh, as Paul characterizes uh those who are elders in the church in First Timothy says they are to not be quarrelsome. Don't don't be as believers. Don't be those who are looking to pick a fight. Don't be those that are looking for a stage or for a megaphone uh, to have a big, open, brazen argument. Uh, th that's not who we are. We are not those that are seeking uh, to draw attention to these things. But if somebody comes after us. Uh, we don't back down. We don't cower. We don't sit in the corner and let them uh, try to determine what we know. We, we stand firm. Uh, we hold our ground and we are not ashamed of the gospel. Lance, thoughts on that? Oh, that's so good, man. Yeah. Trying to work through that balance. You know, when we are bold, we are mighty. We stand our ground for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we are gracious. We are compassionate. Um, we live quiet and peaceable lives. Yeah, I mean, so basically just to, to jump on board with where you were at, that, that, that's, that's what we do. We can't be ashamed of the gospel, the gospel that has redeemed us, the gospel that has drawn us out of the pits of hell. We are never ashamed of that truth. We are never ashamed of that reality. 
if we have found redemption in Christ and we are right with the holy God, the creator of this world, we shall not fear men. We shall not fear men. And Jesus speaks to that issue uh, in in the Gospels. Um, But yeah, I I like how you ended that. So I I don't want to belabor the point here, but we don't walk around with a microphone and a megaphone looking to instigate things in the community in which we live. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, if we are confronted where it's Christ or my business, it, it, it's it's Christ, and we have to trust God to work out exactly um, His perfect plan on that issue. And, and Lance, let me one final word. You, you, I love the way you pose that. If it's Christ or my business, it's Christ, and there's it's not even close, right? Like there's no contest. Like it, there's nothing that this world has to offer that is of any value compared to Christ. So you can take it all. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that I want to lose everything. I, I don't. And, and I don't think that you need to have that martyr's mentality either. But if you're going to make me choose between whether I am uh, committed to the gospel or whether or not I have a successful business, that's a no-brainer. Like, I will take Christ every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And, and I pray that that would be my, my heart, my spirit, my answer if I am confronted with that, but I do think biblically that's where we want to be. Um, so uh, let, let's hop to the next question there, man. Yeah. So uh, question, uh, I think this is question number six. Um, this pertains really to 2020 and some recent statistics that have come out concerning mental health. So in, in regards to mental health and TJ, I'm going to let you go through some of those stats. If you, if you've got some here sure. um, or at least just discuss that, uh, that component of, of this uh, question concerning mental health. What, what, what is our response to that in terms of churches closing down? So we've had COVID, we've had the virus, the pandemic, we've had, you know, probably some government overreach and closing down churches, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of mental health, how, how should Christians respond? How should pastors respond? How, how should, uh, the church respond. Yeah, man, this is uh, this is something that as a as a pastor, I've seen uh, had a lot of conversations with other pastors, other guys in ministry. Um, that the mental health conversation is a real one, um, and really, I don't want to get off too far on this tangent. Uh, open up Pandora's box. There's a lot of conversations that can be had about mental health, and uh, I'm no expert in that field. Uh, I'm just a minister of the gospel, uh, but uh, we must acknowledge that mental health has been kind of neglected in 2020 in regard to um, kind of where we are as a society. Everything's been focused on physical health and COVID, and I certainly understand those things. Um, but th- I remember uh, the person who asked this question um, had asked regarding the statistics of churches in 2020. And so there was a, a Gallup poll. If you're interested, uh, I could, you know, send you a link to this and just reach out and I could pass this along. But there was a, a, a Gallup poll that was done concerning the mental health of, of Americans in 2020. And what Gallup demonstrated, which was uh, fascinating to me, is that they, they allocated all kinds of different uh, subgroups, subdenominations uh, of 
whether you're male or female, whether you're Democrat or Republican, or whether you're white or not, or whether you're married or not, in every single category of demarcation demonstrated a decline overall in their mental health, their self-reported mental health ratings. Uh, but there was one group of all the, the, the analysis they did, there was one group that demonstrated an increase in mental health capacity, and that was those who attended church in some way every single week. If they went every week, their their mental health actually improved even in 2020. And so I, I thought that I found that to be a remarkably fascinating uh, bit of information. And um, and I say that to say that as a pastor, we've had to navigate all the questions of COVID and we've had to deal with all the questions of being safe and opening up and being smart. And we've got church members who are vulnerable. We've, we've lost uh, church members who have had COVID. I mean, it's, it's a real thing. Uh, but we also have to acknowledge that there's a real thing happening when we isolate. And 10 months into this thing, we're seeing all the all the more the importance of the local church, not just in serving and of using your spiritual gifts and uh, being connected, but but being part of the fellowship of the body of Christ. And so I, I I don't really know if I have a whole lot else to add to that. Just to say that the gathering together of believers has demonstrated that God has designed the church, mm. Mm. among other things, to to help improve and to acknowledge our need for one another in terms of our mental health. Man, that's good. Yeah. I, I like what you said there about God designing the church, mm -hmm. you know, and th this is one of the fruits of the yeah. church. I, I, I would just add to that by saying that this is how God has designed humanity. Now, what you just said there, I'm going to use that to bounce us into the next two questions and I'm going to let you, Again, talk about how we're not going to answer those questions today. Uh, but but you mentioned something about how not just how the church was designed, but how humanity was designed. And that leads me to ask this question. Uh, what does a healthy balance for social media look like in today's world? So we, we've dealt with this question of, of how we're designed, but now we live in a culture uh, that wants to kind of resist that a little bit in terms of uh, fellowshipping via the internet and that kind of thing. And so, uh, let me just ask that question. What does healthy balance look like, uh, for, for social media in today's world? And then a follow up with that is what it should it look like for pastors. And so, uh, let, I'm just going to let you answer that however you see fit, uh, in order <laughs> to transition us into the next, into the next question. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, it, it's funny. Um, th this question has come up a lot, I think even between you and I, TJ, we have discussed this question probably more than any other question uh, that was uh, posed to us for for this particular episode. Um, this is a huge battleground for Christians, and man, I, you know, if we start going down a road here, we're we're never going to finish this episode, right. and we'll never get to the other questions. So I think that we had determined before we hit record that. The, the questions relating to social media, um, Christians and social media, pastors and social media, uh, how, how to navigate that entire realm. As we said at the top of this episode, we're going to move that to probably February or March, and that'll be 
that that'll be our one off episode to kind of break up our pneumatology series. Uh, I think I think we said earlier the gospel uh, and social media or social media and the gospel, something on those lines. But you know, I'm looking at question number. I think this is question number seven. Um, there's like seven or eight sub points to this one particular question, man. So um, yeah, we appreciate you asking this one, but this honestly deserves. Uh, at least one episode and you could probably warrant uh, a couple more episodes. So yeah, man, that's all I've got. Oh, cool. All right. So, so that was question seven and eight. They're going to be repackaged and exported to a future episode, uh, which we are just a few weeks away. So great question. Uh, in fact, it's so good that we're going to spend a full episode on it. So <laughs> it's, it's true, next. man. And and you're right, man. We could uh, we could, and I know we're running tight on time here. So we got we got two questions left. Yeah. Uh, let me ask this first one. I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce it to you. You'll get us started, and and I'll I'll piggyback off you. So, uh, the next question is, what about Christian pacifism? Is Christian pacifism biblical or not? How do we respond? How do we, from a war, biblical worldview? Uh, respond to this question. So uh, first, let me ask you, Lance, can you define what pacifism and activism are? And then how do we uh, answer this question from a biblical perspective? Yeah, great question. Great question. I think uh, if I could recommend a resource, um, it's by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He has he has a little book on this. I can't remember the exact title of it. Um, when, I, when I spin it back to TJ, I'll, I'll look it up real quick. But Lloyd-Jones... Resource, I know. But I don't- is so yeah the, the title slipped me i don't want to fall into a da carson deal you know they start misquoting but uh yeah now I'll, I'll look that up here in just a second just came to my mind um yeah so what, what we're talking about essentially here it, it, we're talking about wars battles it is wh- where should a christian land and more importantly what does the bible say about wars okay so pacifism no war is just. Activism is doing whatever whatever the government says. And then thirdly, the just war theory that there's biblical arguments to uh, partake in a just war. So th- those are essentially the three camps or the three, I guess you could say, theological streams that you will find systematicians talking about. Um, that no war is just, that... Secondly, do whatever the government says to do. So if the government says, hey, we're going to war, yep, Christians just roll. Um, and then thirdly, the just the just war theory. So I don't know if we've even talked about this one off mics, but I think I know where you're at on this one. But I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it back to you to get All going. Right, so you're you're taking leap here to let me talk about it so uh here's uh here's where here's where i would go um the and you're you're right in, in helping us define our terms you've got those uh those two extremes pacifism is is obviously it is what it says like we are not to fight no matter what because as christians we value life and and i get the perspective on that but i i would say that the purpose, and this is where just war theory comes in. So just war theory originally, uh, most trace it back to Augustine in the fourth century, uh, fourth, fifth century, and uh, has been advocated by many Christians since. 
uh, and, and there's uh, been uh, some some nuance and some changes to, to how we would define this, but essentially there's a set of principles that guide uh, believers on the question as to whether or not war is permissible. Uh, but the emphasis on on the just war theory is to say that we cannot sit back and watch evil permeate the world. And so if there is evil that must be stopped, then it is justified to uh, to go forward in a in an active sense uh, and press back against evil. Uh, now, one of the reasons why I would say this is because if you are going to land on the pacifist side, to be fully consistent, you would have to nix and denounce government entirely, including preventative government like police, because we've talked about this in Romans chapter 13. That's the purpose of government. That's the purpose of God's gift there is to restrain evil. And so when we see evil taking off, and one of the most uh, notable examples is Hitler. Uh, when you see the evil that's happening there, we as believers must push back against that. We must aim to restrain evil. Um, now, the question of how we do that, of course, gets in a little bit more complicated waters, but um, in essence, I don't think that I would be willing to say that pacifism, extreme pacifism, is a biblical approach. Now, there have been many Christians who have camped there. Lance, you might camp there. I don't know. We haven't talked about it, but my pushback would be uh, that God has given the gift of governing authorities in order to restrain evil. And so when governing authorities recognize evil and they wield their sword against evil, uh, we would want to support that type of restraint. Well, shocker. I, I land exactly where you are on the issue. I, I know you were sweating bullets over there. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I, I think I, I think you nailed the answer to this question. I think it is uh, to some degree. Um, I don't I don't want to say it's more complicated, but it definitely uh, warrants further discussion. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the the just war theory is essentially where I land as well. Um, one because God he, he values life and the protection of life. Um, I mean, I, I mean, we see that all going all the way back to Genesis chapter two. We we see that uh, right at the Noahic covenant again. Uh, the value, you know, you shed man's blood, your your life shall be shed. So traced all throughout Scripture is is the idea of God valuing life and God protecting life. Um, That's right. And, and then uh, thirdly, and, and you already touched on it, so I won't spend any time on it, but God has given government to be able to restrain evil and protect those who are law-abiding citizens. So, yeah, man, we're, we're on the same camp, uh, yeah, same camp there. I would just add one more thing, and this is kind of in the spirit of where we were earlier on holding our ground as business owners or whatever, and that's that we're not out seeking war uh, we we know that war in and of itself can be an evil, and uh, it, it's it's a terrible terrible thing, and uh, so it's it's one of those last resort type things. If if choice if faced with the choice uh, between two evils, well, if I don't have a choice and I have to choose one of them, I'm going to choose the the lesser of those two evils. And so at some times uh, there may be a case where war is justified in order to 
push back against a greater evil. And so that's that's the idea of just war theory. Uh, for for the for the uh, person who posed this question, that would be my first encouragement would be to go and to seek resources um, on the just war theory. Uh, seek to read there and uh, and help at least understand kind of where that argument is. Right. Yeah. And that book by Martin Lloyd-Jones is Why Does God Allow War? It's real short. It's about right. 132 pages. So to- totally, okay. totally I, I, was hoping, I was hoping that you were able to to garner that uh, that title <laughs> at, at that time. I was, I was nervous. I didn't want to ask you and put you on the spot in case you yeah, didn't man. Have- I couldn't remember. I don't remember the title being a question, though. So I, I never would have got to it if I didn't look it up. So... Man, this, again, all the questions have been wonderful. Um, th- this this question is phenomenal as well because I feel like um, those that are in the reformed, um, the reform camp, the ac- maybe maybe academic camps, um, those that truly have sound and solid theology and doctrine, run the risk of. Um, well, I, I would just say this situation or this scenario or this question is probably a battleground for a lot of people, man. Um, so anyways, yeah, to get to the question, uh, this, this listener basically says, the more and more that I grow in my theology, the more and more I tend to nitpick anything I hear from a Christian teacher, pastor, professor, etc., uh, so he he goes on to say, you know, many times, 80% of the lesson, the sermon, the podcast, I completely agree with, but then the other 20%, either I disagree with, get distracted with, overanalyze, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, how how do we balance that, man? How, how do we balance that tension? Um and, and while you start answering that, I'm going to go get the charger here because I need to plug in the computer. It's about to die. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, I was about to apologize for uh, for talking so much, but uh, you've given me leeway to do that. So um, I can uh, I, I can certainly I, I can certainly empathize uh, with this question because I have battled this myself that as I grow, I tend to be one of those who, who wants to nitpick. I, I hear uh, a brother in Christ uh, pray and I think, well, that's theologically inaccurate or whatever that might be. And so I, I totally understand that. Uh, but I have a couple of thoughts uh, for, for how we would navigate this question. Uh, first thing I would say is discernment is a good thing. I, I think we should be those who think critically. We, we should engage uh, what we hear uh, and we should listen with a critical ear. So I think that we should be those who are aiming to grow. Uh, we should be those who are aiming to discern. Uh, I'm thinking about Philippians 1, uh, when Paul says that his his prayers that the church would grow, they would abound with knowledge and all discernment. First uh, John 4, uh, don't believe everything you hear. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Uh, the Berean church, Acts 17, examine the scriptures daily. So I think it is important. Discernment is a good thing. So I don't want to uh, just be negative toward that critical mindset. I think critical thinking is a good thing. Uh, but practically, um, the, the other place I would point out is uh, I would I would point to what is commonly referred to as theological triage, and I, I hope to do a, a, an episode on this in the future. But essentially, theological triage is when you determine or or 
recognize whether an issue is a first, second, or third order issue. Uh, first order issues are those gospel distinctives. Those are things that if you take this away, you lose Christianity. So this is justification by faith. This is uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the deity of Christ. Like Those are non-negotiables. Uh, second order would be things where we might break fellowship in a local church. We would still recognize that they're believers, but uh, perhaps the question of infant baptism. Uh, I would recognize my Presbyterian brothers as uh, fellow Christians, but I could not worship with them in a local church because we disagree over the ordinance of baptism. That would be a second order issue. Third order issues are those things that we can disagree with in uh, the same church. So uh, Lance and I may go to the same church and we may disagree on uh, questions related to eschatology, the end times, or uh, whatever other category might fall in there. And so as we are being those who think critically, I, I think it's important that we understand there are times when third order issues might come up and we want to nitpick. Uh, but really, those are not things that we should that that should concern us. And so we want to pray that uh, uh, God would would shape us, that it, we would not be those who have a critical spirit, but just that we would be those who think with critical minds. And so um, now if it's a first order issue, we need to recognize that. We need to say, hey, that's not okay. That's not Christian. That's that's heresy. Uh, if it's second order, we can say, hey, I, I see where you're coming from, but I disagree. If it's a third order, we say, hey, that's not something that I'm going to lose sleep over tonight. So I think doing that will help us. And again, I hope to come back later and, and do a little bit further discussion on this. So uh, Lance, now that you're back with us, any, any concluding thoughts from that question? Yeah, man. I, I like what you said about first John chapter four and testing the spirits. Um, you know, I mean, that is really, I mean, I think that you could really develop a biblical theology, um, relating to, uh, discerning truth and error, um, discerning what is wise and unwise, what is theologically sound and not sound. Yeah, I, I think the scripture just speaks so often about being able to discern. I mean, this you, you've already, you just discussed this, but being able to discern what is biblically sound and what is not. Um, that, that's why that first John chapter four passage is so critical. Test the spirits. That's why the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 are going back to the scripture um, to see whether these things are so. So there is this idea where Christians are called to be discerning. I think of Titus chapter 1 in particular. Now, I know this is referencing elders. However, I think the application extends beyond qualifications for elders. But it, but it says that the elder must hold fast the faithful word he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So the idea there is that the elder has to have a theological, biblical, and a weighty knowledge of Scripture, not only for himself personally, so he shall know the truth, but on the other hand, he has to be able to now take and apply that truth and be able to discern error and be able to discern that which contradicts. Okay, so... The fact that this question is being posed to me is giving me, um, you know, encouragement that that's exactly what this person is doing uh, in terms of 
being saturated in the truth and recognizing maybe something they wouldn't agree with, like you said, you know, a, a second or third tier issue, or maybe something that's just completely unbiblical. The difficulty with that, and I'm right there with uh, the listener, is yeah. being able to balance it. Mm-hmm. It's being able to balance it. And, you know, I don't know how many times simply I've thought, man, I'm just I'm just right, and they just aren't, you know, mm-hmm. like. And, and had a sinful attitude and approach about the whole deal. So speaking personally, yeah, I, I battle and struggle with this as well. However, I've tried, and I would say within the last two or three years, I've really, really tried to make an effort doing this, is to have that balance, to, to, to have that theological balance um, in focusing on the truth of Scripture. And even though there's some things I may disagree with from a pastor, podcast, or uh, a professor— not harping on those particular issues, but instead trying to master their argument or or their their theological standpoint on that issue. I think that's really helped me. You know, try to understand where exactly they're coming from in terms of where they're getting that from the scripture. Does that does that make? I don't know if that makes sense, Lance. No, that's exactly what I was about to say. That was going to be my closing thought. Was when we do disagree. What I found that has helped with my critical spirit because I, I said like, I, I've struggled with this too. And especially as I've like, I went through this phase of theological hubris and I've shared that a little bit on the, on the podcast before. And when I got into the PhD world and I realized like how little I actually knew, then I started to, to kind of step back and go, Oh wow. Like I don't really know all, as much as I thought. And, uh, and one of the things that has helped me is that I, when I do find someone I disagree with, I try imperfectly, of course, but I try to walk through their arguments and to be able to master what they think, um, because in doing so, a lot of times what happens is even if I'm not convinced, I have a greater respect and an acknowledgement that though they conclude differently, they are aiming to be faithful to the scriptures. And uh, and now other times I do that and I realize, hey, look, this is not okay. This is not good. And we need to reject it. Uh, we need to be, uh, we, we don't need to be those that are just, um, just willing to just acknowledge like, oh yeah, that's fine. You can think that's like, no, theology matters. It always matters. Doctrine is important. That's why I love that reference to Titus one. Um, but when we do disagree, we need to do so with humility, knowing A, we could be wrong, but also B, knowing that brothers in Christ uh, that are aiming to be faithful to the scriptures uh, may end up at a, a different conclusion despite having the same desire. And, and I think that, that that just comes with sanctification and growth and maturity, and uh, we're all seeking to, to do that as well. Yeah, man. Man, I, I think that wraps this episode up. Yeah, ton, ton of fun. If uh, if if you have more questions, please send those in. We would love to do more of these in the future. Uh, fun fun conversation for us. Uh, and, and if you're a, a longtime listener of the podcast and you have not given us a five star review or at least some kind of review on yeah, what are on you doing? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know what to say. So if you're not doing so, make sure you subscribe and and also give us a review that helps us expose uh, our material, our content to others, makes us easier to find. And so please uh, go on and do that. You can like us on Facebook, uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, so you can keep up with uh, these listener request episodes and also 
have information anytime we do kind of giveaways or things of that sort. Uh, you can find links to all of our social media platforms, all of our previous episodes, and any Reformed Informants gear all at our website at www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. Yeah, if you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com. 